beautiful souls. Thank you for joining in with us at Fractal Mind Project. I'm your host, Brooke Trogdon, and today I'm interviewing the splendid Andrew Scott of the Open Mind Project. I recently met Andrew in Sedona when I noticed that his water bottle had a sticker that said openmindproject.com. Considering the namesake, I asked him about the sticker, and we got into a conversation about the intersections between anthropology, religion, and science. I learned that Andrew is the executive director and founder of Open Mind Project, a nonprofit that seeks to shed light on the power and influence that religious, cultural, and fundamental narratives have on human psychology, society, and environment. The Open Mind Project provides educational resources, including a faith portal, which is an online database of belief systems. They promote a broadened worldview that reinforces our identity as one human race, transcending the stories that often divide us. They connect people from different backgrounds, seeking more beneficial narratives to assist in our progression towards sustainability and equitable civilization. Not only is that an incredible mission for an organization to have, but I was awestruck by how the statement aligns with the intentions of the Fractal Soul Network. I asked Andrew to come on today and elaborate on the role that narratives play in constructing our perspectives of reality and how we can work together with these stories to create systemic change in the world. While not everything that Andrew says is a direct reflection of uh, what the Open Mind Project stands for, we just want to make it clear that he is speaking as an individual and um, if he is speaking about the organization directly, he will mention it by name. So just know that these are the opinions of Andrew and not all of these things are necessarily the beliefs of what the Open Mind Project represents. That being said, I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing today? Pretty good so far, Brooke, thanks. What are your, uh, actually, this is actually my biggest question that I had, actually, when I was, like, researching your website, and I um, I was wondering, so I noticed that the O in Open Mind Project isn't closed at the bottom, and I was curious if this is, real, like, a reference to Ouroboros, well, or if it was just a thing. The symbol is called... Uh, it is related to the Ouroboros, I think, because East and West are, there is actually no true dividing line between East and West outside our human constructs, a sort of dualistic Western mind that has divided everything into East and West. So the Ouroboros is a Western idea the snake eating its tail, but the Open Mind Project symbol is a Zen. It's a Zen symbol. It has a couple different names, but in Chinese, it's called the Wujitu, like and also known as the Wuji, and in Japanese they call it the Enzo. But so. The Taiji Tu, which is like the yin and the yang symbol. So in the beginning of the Tao Te Ching, it talks about <clears throat> the one becoming the two and the two becoming the 10,000 things. Mm -hmm. which, interestingly, from like a scientific perspective, is kind of like the, the single-celled organism splits and then 
all of the diverse web of life is created from that split because yeah. the two cells then come back together and reproduce. Uh, but so the the idea behind having our O be open and be the Wuji. So the idea is the Taiji is the description of what comes out of the primary form. The primary form is just an empty circle, which contains everything. Okay, that's actually, I, I really like that. I knew that it had to be something, so I really appreciate you telling me. That's that's really cool, and it like it only just now dawned on me that the fact that it's actually open. <laughs> <laughs> we're yeah, we're actually updating the website right now, and so we've switched. I think the next iteration of the logo is going to be that the opening is at the top. Uh, is what's the reason for making that decision? Uh, just an aesthetic. I've sort of. I think in our Facebook page, it's already upside down. Every every decision as far as aesthetics has sort of implications and messages, and it's hard to know exactly what the right thing to do is. It was actually based on a suggestion of a woman I met in Switzerland who, when she first saw our logo, immediately said, oh, you've got to turn this upside down because all the energy is is pouring out the bottom. Mm. But there, there really shouldn't be any in the universe. There's no up or down. So I love I love design things. Um, how are you guys doing? What what kind of process are y'all doing for uh, redesigning the website? Actually, I like write like website copy and stuff. So that's part of why I'm curious. Oh wow! Well, would love your input on that. But we are updating. Just to try to, well, currently the website's in Joomla. This might not be of interest to our average listener, but currently the website is in Joomla, which is very, very complicated, and it always has these updates, and it's sort of, the idea is to switch it over to WordPress, which means we have to transfer all the content, because we have you know hundreds and hundreds of pages of content. Um, <laughs> So, just sort of to bring it, you know, to get it into a more modern, lively, maybe a little bit added color. Uh, I, I'm attached to the website as it exists because, you know, it was designed to be very academic and just neutral. Mm-hmm just to try to create the best user experience and to keep people in the we're going to add a whole bunch of different information so you'll be able to see the faith portal which we're calling the belief portal cuz we're we already have a social psychology page and an anthropology page so the idea is to in addition to having all these different religious paradigms to also have academic resources within the website. Oh, awesome. And academic perspectives, I would suggest, are also beliefs-based. Mm-hmm. 
have to have some sort of belief construct underlying even science. Right. The idea that people are capable of understanding reality is based on a whole lineages or lineage of ideas. Um, so we want to, I think we're going to go from faith portal to belief portal. You'll still have all the faith, but that'll be accessible from the homepage in the updated web version. And we'll have, you know, our events, some of the events that we've done will be on the homepage. So it's just okay. making it, making it easier to navigate for the person visiting the website. What kind of events do you guys host? Well, we had this concert. We are actually working with the UN last year, the UN Chamber Music Society, which is like a sub subsection of the UN. So we were doing these International Language Day concerts. Unfortunately, they got canceled because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But we did do an online concert during that quarantine where a whole bunch of musicians from all over the world uh, provided music and sort of were playing one song individually to create a full song from within their sequestration. And we've been promoting, like the last few years, we've been promoting in Dallas at EarthX, which is the largest environmental conference on Earth. So we'd go there and have a booth set up and tell people about Open Mind Project, try to – it was really that, – that's always been great because you know, I've got some pictures of Christians, Hindus, Muslims, all kind of congregated together around our booth, just learning about their religions and other religions. Just about bringing people from different backgrounds together. That's incredible. Um, that's like really, that, uh, sustainability is one of my biggest passions. And I do believe that like bringing people together is how we like, you know, will be able to, um, you know, actually solve global issues. Um, and so I would like to talk more about like how, like, how Open Mind Project envisions um, their mission assisting sustainability? Well, I suppose to to answer that question, I should explain that in developing the Open Mind Project, I studied a lot of anthropology as an undergrad, and then Mm -hmm. in graduate school, I studied theology. I actually went to Christian seminary, but I've the the, I went to the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. So at the Graduate Theological Union, there's a Center of Buddhist Studies, a Center of Islamic Studies, and a Center of Jewish Studies, and then nine different Christian seminaries, including a Unitarian Universalist mm-hmm. seminary. All cross-registration, and you could take Cal Berkeley classes as well. But I was inspired to study religion after doing some forum policy. I did a uh, an intensive program at NYU in international affairs, thinking to maybe go into, like, diplomacy. But once I did that international affairs course, I realized 
that we were not going to be able to solve any of our big problems on Earth until we resolve some of these religious divisions, which are which are and have been used to keep people divided and basically disable. We're stuck in all of these divisions, and so we're not even capable of really addressing the fundamental problems. And my conclusion is that a lot of these religious assumptions upon which our whole society is based, like the exploitive society, Mm -hmm. the reason that we don't have a sustainable society, the reason that we're polluting the earth with plastic and sucking the sand off the bottom of the ocean and wiping out all the wildlife is because the two largest religions on the planet both tell us that the end is coming. So if you look at human behavior on a sort of meta scale, we are behaving exactly like you would expect human beings to act had they been told that time was running out and that this world was going to be totally destroyed and recreated by an external creator God. So it's like, if time is running out and this is not the real world, why wouldn't we exploit every resource and sell every resource at the highest price possible? And, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Of course, that's not what science is telling us the world is like. We can't actually find a beginning or an end anywhere. You know, the law of the conservation of energy states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It's just changing form. So life on this planet has been going on for multiple millions of years and will likely go on for multiple millions of years. But, so I think the real challenge is helping people get some freedom from that story. Because it seems like that story is, it pervades everything. You know, even scientific articles on Google, almost every day, if I go to Google or Yahoo News, I'm going to see something about an asteroid, you know, apocalyptic asteroid coming near the planet. It's like we just keep telling the story over and over again and making people feel afraid. And that fear reinforces our unsustainable behavior, I would say. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that in exactly the way that you did. Um, Like, while you were describing, um, like how energy works and how, you know, nothing's created or destroyed. Like, I'm sitting here looking at, uh, like, a picture of a, uh, a sand clock that's on my um, wall. And I just, it's, it, that's exactly it. Like, it's just going back and forth. Um, like, the, the people in control are the ones who took control of the religions and the religions were used to dominate the people and, like, and then constantly threatening them. I mean, like, if it wasn't, like, 
death is always so far away. So, like, death is a whole planet. You have to do what you do to survive. And then when you're in a system that, like, requires you to be complicit or be threatened, then, like, it's just amazing to, like, break through and um, get to a point where there is, like, alternative, like, there are alternative narratives and you aren't limited to a paradigm that was just, like, given to you because it is Western and it's not the only one. And um, it's definitely, it's very, uh, like, degrading to the the truth of like what life is in my opinion i agree it's yeah it's also a very small god concept it's a you know i have this conversation a lot with people that we the the open mind project i'm not advocating i'm i'm i would say i'm very agnostic but I certainly could not um, argue. I could. I cannot disprove the idea of a a creator or a divine unity of everything. I mean, so I'm not saying there's no God. It's just how do we define God? You know, what is the definition of God? And again, if you look at the Abrahamic <clears throat> God concept, it's, you know, it's jealous, it's angry, sometimes it's loving, but it's very judgmental, mm-hmm. it's pretty narcissistic, mm-hmm. you have to worship me, you can only worship me, and you can't worship any other gods before me, I'm number one, you know, and I'm going to kill you and punish you forever if you don't do what I say, and it's like... And it created an imperfect, you know, according to the the creation narrative of those Abrahamic religions, death is not natural. It says we live forever in the garden, but we ate the tree. Of course, that's blamed on woman as well. Uh, and that's the other, you know, inversion of reality that happens in the Abrahamic trip is that the story says that God created man first and then created woman from a a rib of man to keep man company. (laughs) And that's my grandma used to like tickle my ribs. She was very Christian, but she also was like very feminist and she would always count my ribs, you know, and I was like tickle torture. Like I would laugh until I was crying, you know, but you know, it was like a, you know, a joke to her and it, Really, we all know <clears throat> women don't come from men. Men come from women. You know what I mean? We all come out of our mothers. <laughs> right. Um, so it's like reality is inverted in the fundamental basic narrative. So it's like if you can make people accept a lie as the primary reality construct, you know, what other lies will they consume gladly because they you know their whole reality is based on on like the inversion of what is um so it's really like it's it's not about taking people's religions away it's about expanding or or liberating them to have 
a healthier concept of the divine because mm-hmm. most indigenous spiritualities have a creator, you know, they all have a God concept, but they're much more earth-centered. It's not like the God is not out there. It's everywhere. And if God was everywhere and we weren't taught that sort of the earthly realm was dirty and bad and temporary, you know, if we were taught that this is it, I think we would be more likely to take care of it. You know, if we had in our story, like, this is where you're going to be. This is where you've always been. This is where consciousness exists on this planet orbiting this star. I think that, you know, we would have a better chance of caring for it. And it doesn't even need to be a big conspiracy, right? Like, the maybe all the CEOs of the plastic companies, they... They've been taught this narrative, right? You know, so they have a rationalization and justification system for their position. And and I'm guilty, too. It's like I'm a, you know, I have a car, I drive, I live in this world. And, you know, um, it's almost like we can't think our way out of it. We, We have to believe. It's like we need a new myth. Or we need to upgrade our myth. Dude, I, 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 that was very casual, but I, upgrading our myth. So that's what my kind of, that's like what I personally like am wanting, like am ascribing to do is to just like work on evaluating the narratives that we use to like perceive and experience the world and just using my experience as a way to kind of like rewrite because I know so many people who they just don't have the like they they don't have they aren't deprogrammed enough to think freely enough to like actually be able to see what's going on because the programming is so thick and it happens since you're young and like it like it, it it's so deeply ingrained into our consciousness and our perception of reality and um like I've had to go through ex- like long periods of time where I was very much questioning my sanity because I didn't like believe the collective delusion. And I think it's really important to like share those perspectives and like the fact that like, wow, I'm actually so much happier um, and I have so much more respect for everything. And like, I have a relationship with like my food and like with my home and like I and respecting like everything that's here because it is it is like it is there and like I think because we are looking for our sense of our sense of power outside of ourselves then we aren't able to see like all that we already are and it, it allows us to like you know, believe into all of these compulsions and act out all these behaviors that are just, like, trying to seek some sort of, like, satisfaction because we don't have any, like, connection to what's in front of us. Totally. So trippy how we met. Awesome. Uh, Well, yeah, it's like there's this cosmic... What if we already had everything we needed? I think we do. Yeah, or, I mean, of course, it's... (laughs) 
life is a miracle. I mean, I, I would, I look at a lot of the space exploration propaganda stuff. You know, I mean, why would we go try to live somewhere where there's no oxygen, where you, you can't breathe outside, where there's no clean water to drink and you have to recycle and drink your own pee? Like, why would we do that? Well, probably because we'd been taught that this place wasn't safe, wasn't secure. You know, I mean, and, and again, that goes back to the myth. I'm not saying that most people that work for NASA are fundamentalist Christians, but it's like, hang on a second, you guys. Why would we, you know, why would we shoot flaming rockets through the atmosphere if the atmosphere is the only thing that keeps us alive? Without the atmosphere, there's no air to breathe. I mean, it's our most, it's so, but that's the, that's the power of the myth that says that this is not okay, this is not secure, but I would suggest that science really is telling us the opposite, that mm -hmm. this is a miracle, and it's not going to get any better than this anywhere else, especially not for a terrestrial animal. I mean, we've evolved, along with all other life on Earth, to breathe this air and to drink this water and to be Earthlings. That's what we are. Why would we try to, you know, why would we try to leave? So it's almost like the, the mass quest to go colonize Mars is a symptom of the collective insanity, you know, that has been thousands of years in the making, and you know, it, like I said, it doesn't even it doesn't even demand a new conspiracy, because it's like, okay, yeah, certainly Constantine, who converted to Christianity, who was the emperor of, you know, the entire Roman Empire, he created this new form of Christianity that he converted to. So obviously embedded in it was going to be the rationalization and justification for colonization and empire. And we're all living in it. So it's like we are all being programmed by that. And the Open Mind Project is sort of a matter of opening up all this information to everybody so that we can draw the most logical conclusion. Like, let's give everybody all the information because everything I say could just be my opinion. It's just my conclusion based on all the information I've received. Mm -hmm. And we should be able to come up with a consensus view. You know, it's like if everybody looks at the same information that I looked at, theoretically, if it if it makes sense, other people will come to the same conclusion. Right. It's not, there's no original thought. It's like the Open Mind Project is for everybody. And even if I could come up with the perfect articulation of what reality is for right now in this present moment, in a 100 years, it probably won't be right anymore. <laughs> or at least probably won't be relevant. Yeah, exactly, because... Everything, you know, the only constant is change. This new information is always coming to light, so we need, you know, we need an upgradable, updatable belief system that can adapt 
to new circumstances. Uh, like a living... And I think that's, again, the idea that we have everything we need and even in our sort of collective psychosis, we've created, you know, the Internet could be, the, the Internet and artificial intelligence could be the tool of our destruction or it could be the tool of our salvation because we are all in touch now in a new way and you know the difference between a blog and a book is you can add a new you know a book has a beginning a middle and an end it's published right so like right you can't add a new chapter to it right now whereas with a blog you can right so it's like when you read a book online theoretically that could be updated in real time it's like oh there was an error in chapter four. I'm going to go in and fix it right now. <laughs> so nobody is reading that false information anymore. Um, and it used to be, you know, thousands of years ago before there was the written language, we, you know, we told our stories around campfires. And if new information came to light, you know, the story told around that campfire could be updated you know, from one from one day to the next. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I definitely believe, like, books are a very, like, stagnant way of, of passing along energy. Um, and they're, like, very, he like, dense is the best way to describe it. And this digital network is much, much less dense. Um, and like you said, it can either be our demise or the best things ever. Um, it is, and I think that's like completely up to how people use it. But, um, part of needing to wake up from this collective delusion is the fact that like who has power over the internet or like if we're able to make another internet, like the people who are in charge of this stuff aren't the most trustworthy people and they've shown that to us. And so I think it's really important that like at some point we like kind of need another internet that's like actually free and open to like all members of the public. And there aren't like a whole bunch of like, you know, like firewalls that like prevent people from accessing unbiased news sources. Um, I think things like that, and and that's where I get kind of hung up because I'm like fractal soul network. Like my kind of objective is to do everything I can to like eliminate barriers to people being connected to each other and um, us being connected to our planet. And um, even like you said, we we have everything inside of ourselves or like here. Like when when I grew up, like I would always just like look down and I would look up. And you see all the stars and you see that, like, everything seems so, like, chaotic. But then you look at it from a, like, further out perspective and it's very organized and structured and beautiful. And that's what everything is, um, like, on the smaller and upper levels. Like, it's just reflections of what's going on. And those, the the symbols are always there. Like, the ocean is always there. But, like if we do other things, like if we're on another planet that we won't see it from the same perspective and we'll kind of lose source of our origin. Like there's so many things that we're not even taking into consideration because 
we are like, oh, well, this doesn't matter anymore. We're bored with this planet, essentially, is what they're saying. But they haven't even taken the time to explore this planet. Um, I I just wonder, like, what what things do you think would... I mean, how physically do we bridge these divides? What kind of work have you done with, like, the UN? Or, I mean, I know you only work with their music stuff, but, like, doing more foreign policy stuff, what opportunities do you think we have to, like, create big change? Well, that's that's a great question. Our sort of catchphrase has been for years now, all in this together, Open Mind mm-hmm. Project, all in this together. Like, that's the hashtag that I've used on Facebook seven, eight years. Um, So ultimately, we are all in this together. And the people, there's that saying about, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. So even if we, it's like even if you inverted the whole thing, I mean, democracy is a very interesting concept. It says that the leaders should be accountable to the people they represent. And I suppose that was even true of historic dictatorships or like monarchies. You know, if a king or queen pushed too hard and was too oppressive and too bad, you know, somebody could theoretically, you know, kill him and become the new queen or whatever, or the new king. Mm-hmm. But then that new new king or queen is suddenly stuck being in power and trying to stay in power. And power is inherently about control. And in order to control people, you kind of have to make them afraid. So, I don't, I guess the reason I started the Open Mind Project is because I don't have the answer. There's no, all I know is we all, there's nowhere to run. And the fact that we're trying to run to outer space as though we're going to be safer somewhere where there is no life is just a symbol of, like, how crazy we really have become as a society. Because it's like, you want to go live in a hole on Mars because you're afraid of an asteroid hitting the Earth? (laughs) I mean, it's like... Which is right next to an asteroid belt. Yeah, no, I mean, and it doesn't even have, like, as strong an atmosphere as we have to protect from asteroids. I mean, you know, an asteroid or meteor strike on planet Earth if we don't screw it up by sending a bunch of nuclear, you know, weapons at it to try to change its trajectory so that we end up getting hit with a radioactive asteroid, you know, would solve global warming and it would solve overpopulation. And, you know, it wouldn't wipe out all life on Earth. You know, it would probably just, uh, it would be a re, it would be a global reset. And, um, it's like if, if we didn't, if we weren't so afraid of death, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. It's like, you know, we're trying to control all these things that are really, like, way out of our uh, 
they're like way out of our capacity to control. It's like, oh, we're going to study asteroids to figure out which one might hit us so that we can land something on it to change its orbit. But, of course, that also creates the possibility that, like, that asteroid wouldn't have hit us except that we landed on it and changed its orbit and then it, you know, then it might hit us. It's like the, the Murphy's Law, right? If it can go on, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Um, so I would say that the magic of how the world can come together or how we can use foreign policy and international diplomacy to help us is that every leader is as good as their information and their heart and their consciousness. So it's like if their consciousness is very fear-based, they're probably going to behave in ways that are not really good for the masses or the people they represent, whether they're an elected representative or whether they're, you know, a monarch um, or a, a person appointed by the Communist Party to rule over uh, people. So if we can enlighten, so to speak, or in darken, because, I mean, even the word enlightenment, when you think about it, is very racist. Yeah. Uh, the idea that we think of, like, light being good, positive, dark being scary, negative, is, you know, when I was a kid, I felt really safe when I got under the covers in the dark, you know? Yeah. If, mm-hmm. we, if we thought of, like, space as, you know, being infinite darkness in every direction as being like the womb where all life, you know, light has nowhere to move without darkness. So, you know, if we can endarken our leaders in the positive sense of making them comfortable living in the mystery and and understanding that the more the people benefit, the more that the more secure they will feel, right? Like right now, billionaires and, I mean, I can fall into it really easily too, right? Like make good business decisions, invest and make more. But it's like if me having more equals somebody else having less, then I'm not creating inherent security for myself because if I have everything and everyone else has nothing, that's not a position of security, that's like a recipe for revolution. So, you know, Jeff Bezos, who's monopolizing the world, um, he can own everything and have everything, but it's like, has he created a better world? No. <laughs> you know, and you go back 100 years in American history, and, you know, Republicans and Democrats could both agree that we had to break up the big monopolies because big monopolies are inherently destabilizing. And they're a threat to democracy. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the 
information the job of the open mind project is to distribute information to everybody you know and people in high places and low places and you know low places are not inherently worse than high places low places are probably better it's like you go to I went to Thailand when I was 19. Obviously, I was very privileged to be able to go to Thailand. But, you know, what I found there is a world that was materially poorer than what I was accustomed to in America. But the average population there seemed truly happy. Like, they didn't have a whole lot of stuff, but they were happy. And, you know, here in America, we have all the stuff, but, you know, people are committing suicide and murder, and it's like, stuff does not seem to equal happiness or peace or contentment. I mean, stuff nor achievements, which is all that we're, like, given. Um, Like, those are the options, is like, oh, you get stuff, you, you achieve things. There's no, like... There's no, like, inherent, like, you're okay to exist because that wouldn't perpetrate, like, the capitalism required to, like, keep all this business going constantly. Yeah. So, I mean, and diplomacy is really important, and I think uh, finding common ground is really important from a diplomatic perspective just to prevent atrocities and war because if you know if one society can other another society or you know if we can say well those people are different whether it's based on their looks or their culture or whatever if if that goes a little bit too far it becomes pretty easy to like you know the weapons that have now been developed are really pretty scary. <laughs> and so how do we facilitate a de-escalation and, like, let's take all the nuclear uh, material out of the weapons and turn it into energy and then have, you know, it's like we need a clean-up economy. We, we know we've made a mess as a global society. And I mean, not, we can't say that it's natural human behavior. Um, it's not like indigenous Amazonian tribal hunter-gatherers have destroyed the world, right? They're living the same way they've been living for thousands of years, and they're not destroying their environment. We are now encroaching on their environment that they've been taking care of all these years to like, you know dig for oil or whatever, or precious metals or lithium for the electric batteries that we're now being told are going to somehow solve our problem, which is insanity. I mean, it's like electric cars are not clean. We know that. It's, 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 uh, so it's not like, it's not like all humans behave this way, but humans under this particular belief construct that leads to this particular economic construct are laying waste to the earth 
and we've just created a giant mess, right? Like the the ocean is choking on our plastic, and it's now in our blood, it's in our fetuses. You know, the poisons that we spray on our food are in our blood as well. <laughs> um, so we have a mess to clean up, and that seems like something we could try to get everybody behind, all the world leaders, you know, their children have plastic in their blood too. <laughs> so, like, how do we look clearly at the problem and then come up with a sensible cleanup plan? Not expecting that we're going to be able to, like, you know, create utopia tomorrow, but, you know, maybe we can have a thousand year, a 10,000 year plan to stabilize population. You know, it's like, if we were smart about planning, you know, we could create a world without killing anyone where in a thousand years, you know, global population was under a billion people. Um, I mean, birth control, education is the best form of birth control that I've read about. Like, you educate women and they have way less babies. <laughs> um so if we want to, you know, if, if human population is is taxing the Earth's capacity to have kind of a natural ecosystem where we're just a part, not, you know, the whole, um, you know, there's probably, there's ways to sensibly make some of this stuff happen, you know, without oppressing anyone or harming anyone. But only the people in charge can really help facilitate these things. <laughs> right. And then how do we, I mean, that's kind of the underarching thing that I just kept thinking about is how do we, is it a democratic process? Like, uh, sometimes I lose faith that, like, like, I just think we need better leaders. Like, I think some leaders are respectable, but I don't think that most of our leaders are respectable. And, um, like, like, I know that I would want to, like, I've definitely been interested in doing some sort of leadership, but I'm like, I don't know, and that's a lot of responsibility, and I understand that, like, power corrupts people, and, like, you know, like, it does depend on your conscience and your availability, but if it's a democratic process, like, we did elect Trump, like, four years ago, like, you know, we're not far, like, oh. I I had a friend who witnessed someone throwing uh, beer bottles into the ocean and saying that they like it. Like, these people exist. And, like, yes, education is what we do, but so many people just don't care to be educated because they don't care about anything. And that's, like, I guess I just ignore those people, but, like, they exist and they vote. Well, yeah. Or, well, probably most of the people that really don't care don't vote. But just because the act of voting is sort of an indication that you care. <laughs> yeah. But I had a Buddhist teacher say that, I mean, democracy is dangerous because, you know, democracy is inherently as ignorant as the voters. Um, 
and you know, the best thing you could have would be an enlightened dictatorship. You know, if you could have a, there was some Buddhist king, Ashoka, you know, a thousand years ago or whatever, who created this whole network of universities all through uh, India, Sri Lanka, and yeah, if if we could have, but the, you know, the, I am much more interested in educating, if we can create an educated population, then they should theoretically be able to elect leaders who would serve them. Like right now, we've been systematically miseducating our population mm-hmm. as a nation for a long time, at least since Reagan, probably since, you know, before that, they have eliminated civics from our education system, you know, been cutting budgets for public education. So we're not, we're not really raising a generation who even knows how democracy is supposed to function so that they can use it to help themselves. And of course, you know, that benefits private interests. And there's a reason that, you know, 70 years ago, tax rates on the wealthiest people were four or five times what they are now. Right now, like the wealthiest population are paying less taxes than the poorest, which is insane. You know what I mean? Like the people, you know, low wage workers are paying higher taxes than billionaires. That's nuts. Like that makes no sense. That's a, you know, but that's the power of ignorance to perpetuate itself. Um, well, not just ignorance. I mean, it's also just like limited situations. Like they they tell you all you have to do is work hard, but that's not very true. And then life gets in the way. Like they, they make it out like if you're not successful, it's your fault. And like while I mean, you know, everyone has a, a certain degree of personal responsibility for like how they handle their circumstances. Like some people are just like, oh, their parents were poor or like. Um, like basically their parents were poor and uneducated. So then they were systematically like more and more likely to be poor and uneducated and like have less opportunities. And then even if they worked really hard, like, oh, well, poor people, I mean, people who come from less advantaged economic situations are more likely to have to like work full time while going to school versus someone who's more privileged being able to just go to school. And those things like they compound so quickly that it's like, like very, there's a very small improbability that those people ever actually succeed, and it's like but, not really anything besides statistics at that point. But if we had an education system that educated everyone equally, that we, you know, we didn't have these charter schools that, you know, if we really put a lot of money, and of course it takes taxing the wealthiest and it doesn't that doesn't mean making the wealthiest people poor i mean it's it's just a matter of you know balancing what's enough i mean a thousand million dollars is a billion dollars we're talking about you know the wealthiest people on earth now being worth a hundred thousand million dollars plus you know a hundred and i think 
Bezos or Musk are competing with each other for the richest man on earth at around like 180 billion dollars of wealth. Like that's disgusting. That's a yeah. I mean, that's 180 thousand million. It's like these numbers we can't even. It's it's so silly. And while they're hoarding all that wealth, the government is printing you know trillions of dollars that don't actually exist, which then just make the wealthiest even wealthier. So it's like, you know, uh, and people are buying Bitcoin. I'm certainly buying Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I I I would. I'm not a a proponent of Bitcoin. Because it's it's enriching a class of it basically creates a situation where anyone can print anyone can become a central bank without anything backing their currency. So, but I it's definitely going way up in value. So, uh, I appreciate your opinion. I like to hear different perspectives of everything because that's why you make educated decisions and do better research. And it's being mined. I, and I think it's just important to inform people. I took a an online MIT course on blockchain technology to try to understand it better a couple of years ago. And what I gleaned from that course was this is, well, again, another symptom of the collective insanity. Uh, because they're printing, I mean, it's being mined using computer data, and it's all stored inside, quote-unquote, the computer, mined inside the computer, which burns energy. So you're basically, you have to burn energy in order to create the currency, and then the currency doesn't actually exist. It exists in the blockchain and if you think about blockchain you know chains equated with slavery the there's a yeah it's like people are being suddenly their actual uh monetary value is being transferred into the digital matrix, so to speak. That's my understanding or my reading of it. And so the people that are creating the currencies are getting really, really rich. And, I mean, I get promotions for, like, get a blockchain wallet. We'll give you your first five, you know, you get $5 in Bitcoin free. Like, that sounds like a pyramid scam. You know, somebody's offering you free money to get a wallet so that then you're going to buy more. So you're giving them dollars to give you blockchain, which was created by having a faster processor than you. You know what I mean? You have to basically have these hard drives in order. So some wealth is necessary to create the the quote-unquote Bitcoin or doggy coin or whatever block, you know, any kind of blockchain. And now you see it with non-fungible tokens, the NFTs that people... Do you understand what those are? I've done some reading, and I I still don't really get it. Do you have a better understanding of those? Well, yeah, non-fungible token is just... it's, It's like the art world 
getting on the blockchain bandwagon and going, oh, my God, we can make all this money. Well, it's like that classic saying, there's a sucker born every minute. You know, the so there's, you know, for every human being that's born, there is some con artist out there trying to figure out a way to exploit your value. Um, and so, yeah, non-fungible tokens are... Let's say I create, well, it's a, it's a unique digital, it's, yeah, it's basically like a digital image or a digital version of a song, and it has a unique code. So it's, you know, if you pay a million dollars for this, original song that I created, you can now say that you own that song and it's tied, you know, it's tied to blockchain. So it's got a unique code and it's stored inside the computer. And And are there like multiple owners? In the matrix, no. Okay, so you're like, there's like one share of that thing and then you own it digitally. Exactly, yeah. That's um, so weird. Token, so you can't touch it. And there was one, but again, I, I'm afraid that a lot of this is really just a big, it's a big con, and it's so big that it keeps people from seeing reality. You know, because, well, obviously it's happening within the context of, yeah, Elon Musk making a bunch of money from U.S. taxpayers being subsidized by NASA for a mission that inherently threatens the life support the life support system. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're taking taxpayer dollars and launching rockets to the atmosphere? Like, and people aren't allowed to spray CFC cans. You know, you can't use an aerosol can because that could put a hole in the ozone layer. But you can launch, you know, and it's methane. You know, his Falcon rockets are burning methane. And, like, methane is the worst greenhouse gas. And we have better technology. It's just, like, like I think that's the worst thing is, like, he goes by the name Tesla, but he's not even using Tesla's technology because it would inherently be much less destructive to the environment. Yeah, so this, um, well, yeah, you know, who is, who is Elon Musk? And, and what, yeah, does he, is he even aware? I mean, he might actually, there's some people that think he's Satoshi Nakamoto, um, who's the guy that invented Bitcoin, you know, who's theoretically the richest man on earth. Um, based on the value of Bitcoin. So this is just some man, but again, like, you know, the Federal Reserve is theoretically backed by the U.S. government, U.S. Treasuries, U.S. military, you know, and that's that's the backing of the dollar in your wallet. Whereas the Bitcoin, there is no backing. You're talking about an anonymous person who first created the technology. But it's worth 
what it's worth because people believe it's worth that. Um, but, you know, obviously don't lose your password. Um, and what happens, I mean, yeah, and, and just know that the government can track, you know, that's what the blockchain really is. Every single transaction from the first Bitcoin to the next is traceable and trackable. So people think it's extra secure, but it's the opposite of extra secure. Real currency creates a level of anonymity. I can go make a transaction for whatever out there. You know, if I give somebody a $100 bill and they give me a chunk of silver, you know, and we do that, you know, in private, theoretically, only me and that person know about that transaction. Whereas if you make a transaction in Bitcoin or blockchain, you know, certainly the federal government can track it. Because it's all, you know, if, I, if I'm a hacker and I'm inside the system, I can see the transaction. Right. So, you know, again, I think uh, it's actually the eroding of privacy. The, you know, the digital world, right? It's um, it was like we were all fooled. You know, our, getting an email address. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, this is so simple. This is so fast. I can send these notes. But it's like, if you send a letter, you can tell if the seal on the letter has been tampered with. You can see if somebody opened your mail. It's really hard to fake that. You know, it's really hard to, if you've actually licked the seal and closed the envelope, it's pretty hard to, like, get that open and then and then reseal it. And someone knows, right, this has been tampered with, this has been opened. But with email, you know, yeah, we basically all just consented to the end of our privacy, like, Somebody out there can read all of our everything. And we don't know, like, any other way to live now because it's almost required to be a functioning member of society. Like, I can't really go around not having a phone because I wouldn't be able to, like, set up, like, I mean, like, you can't do any, like, you have to have a phone number where, like, the government could contact you. Well, like, not just the government, but, like. You know, you have to do things like if you go to school or you go to work, like they need a contact number for you. Like those things are, you you have to have them. They're like required. But like, so you could have like other encrypted emails, but then you're also just trusting them to like be honest about what they're doing with your information. Yep. And that's like you're just putting everything else into I mean, I didn't really, I never, like, thought of Bitcoin that way. Like, I'm just, like, I'm still kind of, I've been buying Bitcoin for, like, a year now. Like, I'm still learning about it. Um, And so you you saying that just puts it in a much more clear perspective. Um, But then even then... Like right now, it's a it's a it's a profitable thing. Like most people are like trading it, but that even more makes it volatile. And people are actually doing the same thing. People are like, um, like loaning money to people to buy Bitcoin for like interest. It's just a weird system, and like 
I didn't, I guess I knew that it was like very, a resource exhaustive thing. Like one of my, um, friend's dad just recently started mining, mining Bitcoin and he's making like $14 a day or something. But I was like, but how much is that going to cost him in electricity? Um, plus he already had to buy the equipment. Just things like that. Um, but I didn't really think about like the amount of like heavy metals being mined from the like earth in order to be able to like create those things in order to, um, like I would like to see a comparison of the um, overall cost to environmental health um, as opposed to like from printing paper currency versus um, like Bitcoin mining at its like max capacity. Yeah. Yeah. If I mean, if currency was maybe made with hemp paper or. It's a tough one, yeah. Certainly, minting coins is not environmentally friendly either. <laughs> it's, I mean, well, I, I think electric cars are the best way to understand just how easy it is to sell a con. You know, like it's actually going to benefit, you know, electric companies when you plug in a car. Now, solar, there are certain kinds of wind energy that don't kill birds, but like the most wind energy is these huge arrays, wind farms that are really not environmentally friendly, and they take tons of resources to make the, the windmills themselves. And then you have to have, you know, there's there's battery storage, there's the grid, you know, there's the destruction that goes into creating the grid. But most electricity that charges the electric car is being being created by burning fossil fuels. But it's, be, it's fossil fuels being burned at the power plant. So they're using, you know, whether it's coal or diesel, oil, you know. But you're paying. So people buy the electric car and they think, oh, I'm this is clean energy, right? But it's actually still burning fossil fuels somewhere down the line. And you have to mine the lithium that goes into the batteries, which is a, a more and more rare resource. And so, and then it has to be shipped. It's very heavy. So it's being shipped. Most of it's, I think, mined in South America. And it's no coincidence that Elon Musk comes from a mining family. You know, his money, his family's money was made in precious gem mining in, you know, Africa. So he's a miner again. And it's like Bitcoin is this new, it's like they've figured out a way to mine value out of the digital matrix. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's like, you know, well, well, but again, it's, it, from an anthropological perspective, and this is going back to Open Mind Project, what we're trying to help people realize is, like, we are self-defined, intelligent hominids. We think, we say we're intelligent because we do all this stuff, but what have we done? And does what we've done actually indicate that we're intelligent? I would suggest not. Mm-hmm. You know? Lizards have not created the tools of their destruction and the destruction of all life on Earth. We have. So it's like, who's smarter? Probably lizards are smarter than us. Like, they're actually more intelligent because they haven't invented language and they're not creating these complex societies that murder each other and blah, blah, blah. So we are self-defined intelligent hominids. You know, we're related to all the other monkeys and great apes. We're I think 97% identical genetically to mice. So if we put ourselves in perspective and just realize like, ah, wow, okay, we're just animals and we're animals with the massive 
quote unquote toys, uh, it's yeah, it's like it's a it's helpful and it's also scary because it's like okay, wow, we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously, but at the same time we have to take ourselves really seriously because now we have to deal with you know all this stuff that our species has invented over the last few thousand years. Again, it's like we've inherited all we didn't create all these problems, but we're the only ones here to solve them. Right. I think it's really important that people do learn about what it is because if you've made a bunch of money on Bitcoin, you know, it might, you know, you might want to look at some other tangible assets or just buying a little piece of real estate or something. <laughs> It's like because they're India right now is looking at uh, outlawing Bitcoin. So if a few governments, you know, I think in 1937, the U.S. government banned the purchase of gold, private purchase of gold, because it was a threat to their currency model. So if a number of governments do that with Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is inherently destabilizing for like the current uh, currency systems of, you know, sovereign governments. Um it you know, it could obviously crash the price of Bitcoin and then, you know, all these innocent people who were, you know, just getting on the bandwagon are gonna lose their shirt, so to speak. Uh, right. <clears throat> I just shared what, you know, my conclusions based on everything that I've learned about the technology. Um because it's hard to find, sometimes it's really hard to find good information, right? I mean, people are making a lot of money pitching stuff that is not always good. <laughs> it is hard to find good information. I feel like, um, you know, seeking type people, people, I mean, I'm just always looking, reading, like, just, I, I never take anything as finite. I'm just always exploring my other options. And, like, I have never heard a perspective similar to yours in regards to Bitcoin. And, I mean, besides, like, big investors who, like, work in the stock market, which, like, makes sense why they would, like, inherently oppose Bitcoin. But, like, hearing, like, a civilian who did their research, it makes, like, it makes much, like, it does make sense why you have your perspective. And it's definitely something that, like, I wasn't aware of. Definitely, I mean, the reason they're saying it's secure is the same reason why it's not secure. Because it's very hackable. Anything inside the computer, right, is like somebody out there is in there. <laughs> somebody, at least, yeah. Cause the, yeah, because the people who are most likely going to be able to hack it are also the ones creating it. You got it. That's, like, inherently exploitative. I mean, that's exactly what the problem already is, is that the people in charge are the ones who are, like, doing the corruption. Yeah, and I'm. it's like, oh, my God, it's so scary when you go, oh, my, you know, J.P. Morgan is, like, opening a Bitcoin account. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll get on board. But, you know, that's, we should just, we should keep it in perspective. It's like people are going to look for secure investments. We are human, so to speak. You know, we do, you know, everyone has a self-interest. People want to have families. People want to be safe and secure. And yeah, life is inherently complex. How do we unite all the different perspectives and all the different faiths and beliefs in common purpose 
or sort of let the fractal, let the divine fractal thing uh, help us. Emerge. I would say emerge. Emerge. Yeah. Or, well, yeah, hopefully. Or how do we become stewards of, how do we be more helpful? How do we be more helpful? Um, what what things, um, I know one of the questions I had for you was, like, what next? Like, how can we as individuals, um, like, reevaluate our personal narratives in a way that might lead to, like, systemic change? Well, that's what I was referring to about sort of fundamental beliefs, the fundamental myths that are embedded in the dominant narrative. Um, well, what what aspects of a new what what qualities do you think the new narrative, like the new myth, needs to have? New, you know, the timely myth of our generation to say. Um, I would say that the most important one is going from putting ourselves back into the future. You know, we have an apocalyptic myth that the, the two largest religions on the planet are Christianity, number one by numbers of believers, and Islam number two, and they both share almost the identical apocalyptic narrative. They say God created it at this point in time, and the future is destruction. So at some point there is this end. You have this fundamental myth. So in Christianity, the final chapter of the New Testament is Revelation. And in Revelation, it describes this, you know, end times event at Armageddo or Armageddon. Uh, Armageddon is a place in Israel so where the final battle was supposed to take place between good and evil. And Jesus is going to come back, you know, riding the white horse and, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's this, this giant battle and God emerges victorious and the chosen people are saved and, you know, everybody else eternal damnation. In the Islamic eschatology, eschatology is the word that it's like the study of the end times in mm-hmm. it's a theological term. So in the Islamic eschatology, or eschaton, Muhammad comes with Jesus. So Jesus is actually in the Islamic story, and uh, Muslims actually believe in the virgin birth. There's a lot similar characters. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a child of the same Abrahamic faith. So it's Jesus and Muhammad come back, have the final battle together again, total destruction, new creation. So the fact that those are the dominant myths, I think it's just really important to remember. Most of our behavior, the fact that we have a completely unsustainable society, that makes sense in terms of those being the dominant mythologies. So I would say that the most important upgrade we can make in the present moment is start imagining a world that is more consistent with what we've observed, like the law of the conservation of energy. Mostly what we have is stasis. You do have volcanic explosions and traumatic great events and few and very far between large meteor asteroid strikes. So we have these, you know, historical events that are embedded in our collective memory in the myths. There are great floods, right? At some point, you have polar shifts, and if you go back far enough, our ancestors, who were, you know, mam- 
mammals living underground, they survived the event that killed the dinosaurs. We wouldn't be here otherwise, right? So it's like life has gone on according to evolutionary biology. We have been here since we were a single-celled organism that split in the first place, right? Along with all other life here. So, like, there's this continuum. And if we if we take that long view and we start to be grateful for these conditions and reducing our self-centeredness, so it's like Andrew's not going to live forever, but life is going to go on on Earth. So if I reduce my attachment to the concept of me as being this entity that exists apart from everything else and realize it's like, oh, I'm actually connected to everything else. So when my consciousness is gone as an individual, I'm still going to be here in an energetic sense mm-hmm. along with all other life. So at, that is the kind of – that's been my conclusion that the most important kind of change we can make is toward that interdependent construct. We are all in this together. We're all connected. We're intimately connected. And death is not something to fear. It's a given. It's going to happen to all things that are living. But life goes on. You know what I'm saying? So, like... Mm-hmm. I do. We're not um, going anywhere. And it's all about transitions, and I think that's something that we haven't, like, focused on enough, is, like, transitioning from one, like, phase of being to the other. It's like, oh, begin, end. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, we're addicted to these stories that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the end is always the beginning, and the beginning, we we need to be born again into, like, this moment, the present moment, that is totally new and totally fresh, and it's totally now, and it's always been and always will be now. I mean, the beginning is always now. And there is no end, right? It's like we've just been stuck in these, it's like the printed, like we're stuck in the book. And we're addicted to, like, having a conclusion. But it's, I don't know. I haven't been able to figure out a conclusion. It's like I found so much more peace when I stopped looking for conclusions and just, like, accepted like a level of uncertainty almost as its own form of faith like knowing that things are going to keep moving and i'm not going to know what's going to happen next or like how it's going to get there but like i have i always have enough information to do what i need to do right now yep yeah it's like you just do the next right thing it's like this it's going it's entering the mystery and i was very privileged to get to spend a lot of time in like the anipi Lakota Native American ceremony, the sweat lodge, mm-hmm. which kind of symbolizes the womb of Mother Earth. So you you always crawl in on your hands and knees. And, you know we're being gentle with the earth, and we you go in and um, just singing and praying in a very hot room. But yeah, the the God concept of that tradition is Wakantanka, which is yes, yeah, it's, it's much more like the great mystery rather than it's not so anthropomorphic it's just the totality that like i i resonate a lot with like divine feminine energy which i also would uh uh, like the same energy as that great mystery eternal darkness like the depths 
of like where we emerge and like i think um because we always like our creation stories like a woman is a like uh, a sidekick to the great creator man and like it, it just doesn't do anyone justice because it creates a narrative where men have to dominate women and then we dominate our planet and we don't respect our planet and we don't respect when our planet tells us things like when you know what i mean like we know that we're destroying our environment, but we choose to ignore, like, the fact that all the what was once green is now yellow. Huh. Wait, what do you, what, what's yellow what, when you say what was once green is now yellow? Um, well, I mean, like, a lot. Um, I've noticed in certain places of a lot of industrialization, like, um, you'll see, like, the ends of, like, tree leaves being, like, yellow or, like, being a weird coloration that it's, like, at the tip of their leaves, so it doesn't look like that's how they're supposed to be. I think it's just that they're absorbing, like, not large enough quantities of carbon dioxide, like, there's other pollutants in the air, um, things of that sort, or, like, you know, when you're driving on the highway and there's just a bunch of, like, 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 straw, um, where, like, oh, this is obviously used to be a forest, but they, like, ripped up all the forests, and now it's just, like, dirt or straw, like, or, like, sand. Like, it's not it's not what it was before, and they just put something to cover the ground so it doesn't erode. Like, but if you would have left it alone, then that wouldn't have been the issue, but you needed to dominate, and you needed to do what you wanted to do without taking heed to, like, what the environment wanted of you. Yeah. No, yeah, and I really, I like the I loved your description of the well the darkness, yeah. I mean, it's also soil. It you know exactly yes. So the, that's what, and that's what we were talking about that when we were in Sedona is like tending to the soil and creating new topsoil. Yeah, all seeds grow from darkness. You know, you plant the seed in the darkness, and the miracle of life occurs. I mean, so this. Yeah, it's um, the magic and getting beyond, like getting beyond this myth of our superiority or intelligence. It's like, I mean, again, it goes back to the Abrahamic myth that we were created in the image of this all-knowing deity. What if, you know, the divine is not a knowing, it's not a knowingness, it's a beingness, it's it is everything, and we're part of it. But we were misled into thinking that we were created in the image of something that knew everything. So we wanted to know everything because it's like, oh, well, I'm I'm supposed to be like this God, and God knows everything. Therefore, I should know everything. But it's like, what if that has made us totally insane? Like because it's impossible for us to know. Yeah, we want to be the God that we created that doesn't exist. Right, yeah. Whoa. Not that, like, God doesn't exist, but the, the you know, the thought, we basically we made a thought form and then compared ourselves to it, and, like, the definition of the thought form is you will always fall short. So, like, our definition of ourself is always falling short of this ideal of perfection. Yeah. And so we stopped trying, I think, as, like, a lot of, like, I mean, not, everyone has their own definition of trying, but, like, you said, like, we stopped having the, 
we're like, oh, well, something bigger than me has it figured out, so I don't need to, like, it's not my, uh, like, responsibility, essentially. And we're just, like, putting it off into this higher power that, like, like, if anything, we're supposed to be the stewards, so, like, you are acting as the higher power, but, like, not as a higher power, but, like, as uh, also member of this planet. As servants. And maybe, you know, the, the Buddhists are very much about vegetarianism. And I haven't gotten fully, ve- I mean, I have at times been fully vegetarian, but yeah, maybe that's part of it too, is just like to, to be gentle with all life. At least not factory farming. Um, like my partner hunts and we like talk a lot about, um, just like the process of life and death. And like, if we, like, if we, we harvest plants, we eat plants, like, I I can understand, like, a perspective of, like, we harvest animals, like, we raise them, we're caretaking them, like, but, like, I don't hold any space in my worldview, like, or, like, hunting, like, a challenge. Like, I can see different perspectives, but, like, factory farming is just, like, one of the, like, like, I saw a bunch of, this wasn't even factory farming, but I saw a bunch of birds, like, there, there were like geese and um, ducks and a whole bunch of like fully grown birds, like in bird cages, like in cages, like actually like dog cages, and like they couldn't like flap their wings or anything, and they were just so loud, like crying out. And I just wanted to like go and like let all those birds go, like, like it just made me so frustrated that like, and I was just going to go get a tire changed, and this was like right next to it, and there are all these birds, and it's like. Like there's no respecting the the beingness of that like animal and like that's what really bothers me like that that's really dominating and like only ex- only exploitate exploiting them and not really respecting them at all and I think like in caring for your own animals and really forming a relationship with them like you do respect them and you do honor them and you do like have integrity for their life and you're respecting that life in the consumption and like giving new life as opposed to like just I like uh yeah I just feel like if you're willing to buy an animal like that um I don't know I I wouldn't want to support that business I would want to put them out of business yeah I'm with you yeah no there's well I mean I guess you know where animals all die maybe we should just you know make lots of stews with the animals you know I uh, yeah. Again, these these are these these things are beyond my pay grade. I'm just one of the I'm just one of us. It's a it's a miracle to be alive. It is a miracle to be alive. I I'm just grateful to be here. I'm so grateful that I met you. Like I mean, I was really just having so much trust in even going to Sedona and then seeing you once at the coffee shop and then at the other restaurant, I just thought that was incredible. Um, <laughs> especially that I was twice in one day. I'm like really happy you made time to sit down and talk with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, to be continued. I mean, let me know how it, how it comes out and, um, yeah, I'll be, I would love to share it. I mean, I, you know, I'd love to get it out to our audience, um, and kind of get your fractal mind project out there to the open mind project audience. So. That's awesome. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I do, I look forward to doing more stuff with you. I think this is awesome. I think we, I definitely think we met for some, some reason to be doing this stuff. I mean, it, I don't find very many people who, 
I mean, I do have a community and you're like perfect for that community. I just think it's incredible. I'm just so happy. So grateful. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, till we talk again. Till we talk again. Blessings. Thank you. Blessings. Peace.